Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin on this Christmas Day and speak with someone who is following the footsteps of the prophet Jesus, whose birthday is celebrated today. Although many Americans who call themselves Christians are influenced by televangelists who preach the prosperity gospel, it is clear from the New Testament that Jesus ministered to the poor and was the equivalent of a community organizer, if not a left-wing revolutionary, working for social justice in the Roman Empire, activism for which he was crucified. Joining us is the Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris, co-chair with Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and the co-director of the Caris Center for Religions, Rights and Social Justice. Having spent the past two decades organizing amongst the poor in the United States, she's the author of Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor, and We Cry Justice, Reading the Bible with the Poor People's Campaign, co-authored with the Reverend William Barber. We will discuss her article at Tom Dispatch, Dreams of Democracy This Christmas. Then, looking further into Christianity on this Christian holiday on Christmas Day, in a divided country in which Christianity itself is divided, we will speak with the son of the founders of the religious right, who worked with such figures as Pat Robinson, Jerry Falwell, and focus on the family's James Dobson. However, he felt increasingly alienated and experienced a crisis of faith that would ultimately lead him to his departure from the evangelical movement. Joining us is Frank Schaefer, a New York Times bestselling author of more than a dozen fiction and nonfiction books. Frank is a survivor of an evangelical fundamentalist childhood who became an acclaimed writer. He's a member of the advisory board of the Women's Business Collaborative, and his memoir, Crazy for God, which NPR's Terry Gross called a very important book, is used as a textbook in history of religion classes and courses in comparative religion and sociology in public and private universities. Frank's three semi-autobiographical novels about growing up in a fundamentalist mission, Portofino, Zermatt, and Saving Grandma, have been translated into nine languages, and he podcasts at In the Conversation with Frank Schaefer, a series which features interviews with artists, activists, authors, and political and business leaders. And joining us on this Christmas Day is the Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris, co-chair with the Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and the co-director of the Caris Center for Religion, Rights, and Social Justice. Having spent the last two decades organizing among the poor in the United States, she's the author of Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor, and We Cry Justice, Reading the Bible with the Poor People's Campaign, co-authored with Reverend William Barber, and she has an article at Tom Dispatch, Dreams of Democracy This Christmas. Welcome to Background Briefing, Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here this Christmas. Well, thanks for joining us, and Merry Christmas to you, Liz. And I wanted to just quote from the end of your article at Tom Dispatch, Dreams of Democracy This Christmas. You say that, you quote the retired professor of humanities, Jack Metzger, who wrote in inequality.org, quote, Because the wealth of the wealthy confer both economic and political power, we cannot adequately defend democracy if we go on allowing our economic oligarchy a completely free lunch. Next time you hear a politician say we can't afford something that clearly needs doing, just stop a moment and think what a wealth tax on a very small proportion of Americans could accomplish. Well, 
well, over a week ago, that very question came up in uh, the House of Representatives. Uh, Representative Kevin Brady, a Republican of Texas, who was one of 176 House Republicans who voted in favor of the $858 billion National Defense Authorization Act, he said in cutting out the child tax credit, which is a mere $12 billion compared to $858 billion, he said the country frankly doesn't have time or the money to help impoverished kids. So there you have it. <laughs> you quoted I mean, something that is not hypothetical. It's sadly real. That's right. That's right. And it's actually, you know, a Christmas story. I mean, this is exactly what's happening um, in Bethlehem. It was 2,000 years ago um, when Jesus's, you know, parents are forced um, to to go be counted in the census so they can be taxed, you know, adequately. Um but who are so poor that they have nowhere to to bear a child but an, a dirty barn, right? I mean, and and still, you know, and, and we're are being turned away, being told there aren't the resources. And, and we hear this in our political discourse today all the time. I mean, especially when it comes to programs of social uplift for the poor. And, you know, here in what is most likely the richest nation in in human history, uh, to to have those words come regularly out of the voices of politicians that we just don't have the resources that we just can't do it. Um, you know, that's exactly the wrong question. I mean, the 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 you know the question should be, can we afford not to invest in our kids? Can we afford not to um, end inequality? And and you know Joseph Stiglitz and and other economists um, across the country and world have said no. The the cost of poverty and inequality is actually far too great. Um, and it's and it's impoverishing our democracy and it's it's threatening um, our very existence as a nation and in this world. And um, again, that's that's. The reality that poor and low-income people are facing every day, um, but it's not just impacting the poor; it's impacting everybody. And the quote that I just read references an economic oligarchy. So, where would you say we are, Liz, on this Christmas Day, in terms of whether we are still a democracy or, or we have become an oligarchy or a plutocracy? Right. Well. I mean, we live in a nation that this Christmas morning we woke up with 140 million people who are low, poor and low income, where more than half of U.S. kids are living in food inadequate homes, uh, where there's, you know, in the city where I, I reside, New York City, there is record homelessness. Um, we've never had more homeless people than we do um, this year um, and this day. And, and you know, and, and then it's also happening at a time when workers have not seen the minimum wage increased in 13 years. We haven't extended or expanded any of the pandemic era programs that were, you know, helping to reduce some level of insecurity and poverty. Um, and we're seeing, you know, a, a significant attack on our democracy in terms of our voting rights and and then for sure the kind of state of living for people in this yet to be United States. And so, you know, indeed, we are living much like Jesus did um, in a time uh, where, you know, as, as biblical scholars will say, there, there was a, a different golden rule. Those with the gold make the rules. And we still are seeing that here in the United States today. 
you know, in uh, 2022, almost 2023, where, you know, a very small number, very, very super small percentage of people, you know, control almost all um, so much of of the wealth and power in the society and the, you know, one third of the U.S. electorate that is poor and low income and almost half of the country that is poor and low income, uh, you know, has has very little political or economic power and whose lives and livelihoods are being, you know, severely disrupted by the kind of whims and decisions of of the most wealthy. And so, you know, uh, we we live if it is a democracy, it's surely an impoverished one and, and one that 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 we need to, you know, come together and fashion into um, a reconstructed one where we can lift from the bottom so that everybody can rise. And you mentioned the Nobel economist Joseph Stiglitz. He recently wrote a piece warning about American fascism. So beyond the inequality, we also have, you often hear from former President Trump and other Republicans, they keep talking about the radical left Democrats, but very little attention seems to be paid to the reality of radical right Republicans who certainly control the House, if not have a lot of influence in the Senate. Well, the fact that in the midterm election, which I know people are are kind of celebrating as not ha- turning out as bad as people had predicted and and that sometimes turn out at you know this at this point in midterms the fact that the majority of the republicans running in those midterms were election deniers says something about the state of our democracy i mean the the fact that you know january 6 wasn't just an insurrection but you know helped to basically bring about a rolling coup of voter suppression in, you know, dozens of states across the country on top of already really huge levels of voter suppression that have have happened, you know, since um, 2010. And so, like, already there is this connection between kind of attacking our political rights and voting rights and then also the kind of economic well-being of the people. And, you know, what we see is the states that are denying people their voting rights and are also the states with the highest levels of poverty, the, the least protections of immigrants, the, the, um, the lowest rates of health care um, insured. Um, and so there, there is this direct connection between, you know, our politics and our economics and between a drive towards fascism and a deeper dispossession and impoverishment. Those go hand in hand. They 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 have throughout history. They they do today, and you know that's actually kind of what's at stake. I mean, that's why, you know, uniting and organizing those that are at the bottom, the those that are are excluded and exploited and um, locked up and left out and looked over into a a kind of political and economic force for change and for truth and life and justice, to me, is the hope that we have in this Christmas season and uh, as we kind of observe this holiday. And the Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris, I mentioned the radical right uh, Republicans. I forgot to mention that they've also captured the Supreme Court. Uh, not Not a small thing by any means. But Within, at least sociologists are telling us what is propelling Trump and his message is this notion of white replacement, and it's led to a kind of white Christian nationalist movement. And 
this is a frightening fact that, that's happening in America, and, and it's happening within a, a religious uh, community, at least at one that claims religion, or claims to be sanctified by religion. So given what the Bible, or at least the New Testament, is all about, and what the life of the prophet Jesus was all about, the fact that you are the co-chair with Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign is you are following in the footsteps of Jesus, are you not? The message largely in the New Testament, particularly in the book of St. Matthew and the Beatitudes, etc., is about ministering to the poor. So is there a way to weaponize the Bible, which has largely been you know, co-opted and misinterpreted? Because there's nothing in the Bible that says that you know, you should, you know, give me money so I can buy an executive jet and shaking down poor people for money as televangelists do and celebrating capital punishment and carrying an assault rifle. There's none of that in the Bible. So I'm sort of struggling here to find a way to level the playing field, if you will, given the political power of the religious right, which is based upon a misinterpretation of the Bible as opposed to empowering the religious left, which has the Bible on its side. So, I mean, for sure, this this kind of threat of white Christian nationalism is is a significant one. It has been, you know, really for decades. I mean, if we look at, at the history of this country and of, of social struggle and social justice movements, there's always been this battle over theology, a battle for the Bible. You know, the the slave masters produced a quote-unquote slave Bible that left out the Exodus, left out the prophets, left out, you know, those that inaugural sermon from Jesus where he says he's been anointed by God to bring good news of Angelum to the poor, to those that have been made poor by, you know, systemic injustice. And, um, and, and yet, you know, back then, uh, Harriet Moses Tubman and Frederick Douglass and other um, folks who who were enslaved and formerly enslaved um, leaders of the abolitionist movement, you know, would not concede um, the Bible and religion to to this kind of slave religion, slaveholders religion, and and so, you know, we see that battle, you know, throughout U.S. history, um, you know, whether it's the robber barons and the social gospel movement, whether it's the kind of prophetic. Christianity of uh, the civil rights movement and, and other, you know, other kind of social movements of, of our of our history. Um, and I think we're seeing that kind of battle for the Bible playing out today. Um, you know, uh, I, I've done a lot of work, uh, scholarship and, and preaching and teaching on, on some of the most famous passages in the Bible about poverty that are used to interpret um uh, and and kind of say that that if God wanted to end poverty, um, God would do so, and and that you know it's it's the fault of of poor people for being impoverished. Um, if people just prayed more and had fewer kids, you know, then there would be pie in the sky when we die. But we all know that's a lie. And so, you know, I I think we in the Poor People's Campaign, um, a national call for moral revival. I think the the work that that organization that I direct, the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice, that what we're dedicated to is kind of engaging in that battle, um, showing what some of the the real teachings, the the kind of what's at the heart and and core of our not just the Bible, but but our our various religious traditions throughout the world is 
caring um, for people, welcoming the immigrant native for, you know, canceling debts, paying workers a living wage, you know, investing in, in social programming that lifts everybody up, that really organizing society around the needs of those that are most marginalized. The kind of idea that the least of these are most of us and that, and that you know, if you put folk at the center of your policies and of your economics, then, then you can live into and realize kind of a, a vision for justice that in the Christian Bible would be called the kind of reign of God, the empire of God, the kingdom of God. Um, and so, you know, indeed, I believe that that Jesus Christ um, was um, was leading a, a poor people's campaign back two thousand years ago, and was uniting and organizing people across the Roman Empire, and kind of turning over the tables of injustice and and you know exposing the the impoverishment of the society and the system, and um, you know that's why he was killed. Um, he was trying to, you know, transform society from the bottom up. But then that didn't have the last word. And people, you know, throughout history have gone back to those stories and to to the early Christian movement and and organized for justice in their own times and own places and, and, and other other faith traditions as well. And so, you know, the kind of heretical nature of this white Christian nationalism um, that, you know, is not new but has surely gained a, a, a position of power and influence in our society. And, and as you were saying, I mean, you know, Jesus was not a card-carrying member of the NRA. You know, he traveled around, you know, the, the kind of countryside, um, setting up free healthcare clinics, you know, never charging a leper a copay. Um, I mean, <laughs> this is the Jesus that we celebrate on Christmas Day. I mean, he, you know, well, was he, born. He, he didn't preach the prosperity gospel, right? <laughs> Surely not. I mean, he said that I have come so that you may have life and have it abundant. And he said that to to the most marginalized, the most dispossessed, the the poorest of his society. And he says it to our the poorest in our society today too, that this yours is God's empire, that yours is God's reign. This earth is 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 to to welcome you first and lift you up. Um, and that, you know, you know, anything that gets in the way of that is heretical and anathema. I mean, you know, this message that you can't worship God and mammon, um, that wealth and, and God, you know, do not go hand in hand. And that, you know, unless you actually adhere to, you know, what the Bible actually teaches and what justice movements throughout history have taught um, of, of how you go about uh, changing things. And that's, you know, you cancel debts, you release those enslaved to, to injustice, you you pay workers a living wage. You invest in in the people, um, and you kind of lift people up um, and proclaim justice and truth and love and life. And 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 guess what? That you know makes a, a truly healthy and better society, and not one where you have you know Peter having to kind of rob Paul, or where you have um, people kind of pitted against each other and and said that this is as good as it gets. It's it's not. Um, we can do so much better. Um, with the resources that that this world has, um, everybody could live a, a brilliant and decent life, and that's what we should be working towards. Well, Reverend Dr. Liz Thierry Harris, I thank you so much for joining us on this Christmas Day. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be with you, and Merry Christmas. 
We're going to take a brief station break and back looking further into Christianity on this Christian holiday on Christmas Day in a divided country in which Christianity itself is divided. Monster, Mr. Grinch, your heart's an empty hole. Your brain is full of spiders. You've got garlic in your soul, Mr. Grinch. I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half foot pole. You're a vile one, Mr. Grinch. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And on this Christmas Day, I'm joined by Frank Schaefer, a New York Times bestselling author of more than a dozen fiction and nonfiction books. Frank is a survivor of an evangelical fundamentalist childhood to become an acclaimed writer. He's a member of the advisory board of the Women's Business Collaborative, and his memoir, Crazy for God, which NPR's Terry Gross called a very important book, is used as as a textbook in history of religion classes and courses in comparative religion and sociology in public and private universities. His three semi-autobiographical novels about growing up in the fundamentalist mission, Portofino, Zermatt, and Saving Grandma, have been translated into nine languages, and he podcasts at In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, a series which has featured interviews with artists activists, authors, and political and business leaders. Welcome to Background Briefing, Frank Schaefer. Uh, thank you, Ian. What a pleasure to talk to you again. Well, Merry Christmas to you and happy holidays to our listeners. And so this is a day ostensibly that celebrating the birth of the prophet Jesus. So which Jesus are we talking about, Frank? Well, you know, it's interesting that you ask that because for whatever reason um at this christmas time i have been thinking about the period of history we are in uh very similar to the roman empire in terms of the the rise of a kind of an oppressive putin driven fascism in the attack on ukraine and that idea of good resisting evil you know at this time of christmas is something that is a as a person who grew up in a Christian family really features very heavily in my mind. And someone that comes to mind is Sophie Scholl, who was a German student who was executed by beheading in Munich um, in 1943 for handing out leaflets in the University of Munich, denouncing the, the Nazis and asking for change. And she and her brother Hans were both executed by beheading after a show trial. And I know that is not a very Christmassy theme for the holidays, but to me it, it is in that the the message of Christianity at its best uh, is that redemption is possible. But 
what we fail to recognize in the United States sometimes is that redemption comes to those like Sophie Scholl, who is remembered fondly now by Germany and German students as a hero that in, in a way gives them hope that even looking back at their darkest moment, because of her stand and her bravery, uh, in a kind of a time capsule forward tells us that we can now make similar stands in our own age. And so as we look at our culture being taken over by the billionaire class, it increasingly follows their own version of fundamentalist, almost fascist ideas of of self-aggrandizement and, and profit at any cost, elites emerging in the same way they did in Germany in the 1930s, um, the rise of national socialism and so forth. We're seeing that replicated here. And I guess on this Christmas, my message is we need better heroes and we don't need the self-proclaimed heroes of our moment. We need to look back at people like Sophie uh, Scholl and the White Rose movement, this nonviolent resistance movement in Germany at the height of Nazi power and the courage that they had. And, you know, we can't even find it within ourselves to denounce our billionaire class as they seize one human right after another away from us uh, by not paying taxes, by the accumulation of vast wealth, by this slide of the Silicon Valley, you know, tech bros to increasingly libertarian points of view where they only are defending their own freedom as interpreted as the freedom to make money at the expense of the whole culture. So my Christmas message is a little odd this year in the sense that if you're looking for guidance from my point of view of what Christianity represents as its best, it would be Sophie and Hans Scholl and their stand in their day and age, which is unfortunately all too similar to our own moment. So that's a little bit of a different thing to think about on Christmas Day. But, you know, when I look back at her courage and her brother's courage and the others that stood with them, handing out leaflets, knowing that they would be caught, um, and she being carried away, by the way, at that moment and, and, and threw them down from a, a balcony to students below after they had been placing them surreptitiously, she decided to just go openly uh, and, and was caught because of that. Uh, you know, it's so distant from our own navel gazing of our, our period of history, where we don't stand for much more than our own ability to prosper so much of the time. And so I just think we're in a place very similar to Germany in the 1930s, 30, 1930 to 33, when Hitler actually became officially member of the government and was promoted again and again, you know, and then fast forward to when Sophie Scholl in, in 1943 took her stand. You know, this was basically a child. She was just out of her late teens. She was 20 years old, I think, when she died. And um, to me, she's a real hero. Uh, and I look at her as an influencer, if you could put it that way, in the true sense of the word, not selling makeup or, or hair dye but or lifestyles, but an influencer for all of history that says, look, you have a choice. Take a stand on principle in the era you're in against the powers that be when they turn to the dark side. Um, and offer hope to the future of the human race that way, whether it's on environmentalism or any other things. So this this Christmas, I would just say, let's remember Sophia Magdalena Scholl and her bra brave brother Hans, and the fact that they gave their lives for our moment of history too, in holding up the, the idea that there is something out there that is more important than we are individually. And I, I think their courage in a way is what I would like to say is my Christmas card to this present moment of our own history. Well, Frank Schaefer, 
just to inform the audience here that your parents were Francis and Edith Schaefer. They were world-famous evangelical speakers and authors who are credited with literally, in a sense, creating the religious right in this country. And you previously worked with figures such as Pat Robinson, Jerry Falwell, and Focus in the Families, James Dobson. And given the, how the religious right and the evangelical movement dominates the Republican Party and has a major influence over our politics and, in effect, controls the Supreme Court, even though, of course, the Supreme Court's actually, in effect, handpicked by one Opus Dei figure known as Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society. There's a, obviously a compact between far right-wing Catholicism and right-wing Protestantism, and they have captured the Supreme Court. But let, let's talk about what I see as a kind of peculiar backlash to the success of the religious right in this country, because we're learning now that more and more Americans are turning away from religion, particularly young Americans, because uh, they find these television evangelists shaking down people for money and to buy executive jets and, and all of the hateful stuff that they spout. And it turns them off from religion and, and more the more conventional religions like the Methodists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians, uh, their pews are almost empty. Mm. So can you make that case? That uh, Yeah, very much so. But I want to back up to something you were saying a moment ago, because, again, you know, I don't want to harp on this too long. But if you look at why Sophie Scholl and her brother Hans were beheaded, and you work that story backward. It was because of the rise of National Socialism and the Nazi Party. And the interesting thing is I understand that rise because my own activism within the religious right in the 1970s was very much a precursor to the rise of the fascist white nationalist right here in America now and the Christian nationalist right, which is the new iteration of what we were doing with the so-called pro-life movement now extrapolated into the future. And you were talking about Opus Dei and the Roman Catholic majority on the court or the conservative majority, the Federalist Society, these other things. None of this would have happened in the United States without the involvement of my father, myself and others who basically turned the abortion issue into a litmus test. And one has to remember something. And I, this is not a digression. When we went out with our pro-life anti-abortion message in the mid to late 1970s, we ran into tremendous resistance in the evangelical movement. I know both people on the left and right misunderstand and have ignored something, but I was there. So take it from me. For instance, when my pro-life leader father met with Dr. Billy Graham, the evangelist at the Mayo Clinic, when they were both there undergoing checkups and treatment, they actually met several times on this subject. Dad would beg him to, quote unquote, take a stand against abortion. And the Reverend Billy Graham staunchly refused. He was pro-choice. So was Dr. Criswall, who at that time was president of the Southern Baptist Convention, president of the Southern Baptist um, Seminary in Dallas, the pastor of First Baptist Dallas. You can't get more fundamentalist than that. And yet he and Dr. Graham and many, many others, the editorial board of Christianity Today magazine, the flagship of evangelicalism, said that the pro-life issue was not an evangelical issue, that this was a Roman Catholic issue along with contraceptives. Uh, uh, there are anti-contraceptives. And they took a stand in the opposite direction. And we had to bully them and talk them into joining our cause 
and uh, people could come to it. Dr. Billy Graham never did. He, he, he remained pro-choice. The fact of the matter is the same thing happened in Germany in the 1930s, and that was there were elements of both the evangelicals, the Lutherans, and the Roman Catholics who were appalled by the street fighting between the brown shirts and the stormtroopers, the Communist Party, and so forth saw disorder there. Germany was a, a, an act, a democracy with the rule of law and all the rest of this until the National Socialists came along and in a second election won enough seats to overwhelm the rest of the political system. You know, it, the, the totalitarianism did not arise overnight, and it only came to pass when two groups of people in Germany decided to play along with Hitler and the, and, and the Nazis. The first was the evangelical churches, uh, the Lutherans, the Roman Catholics went along because they saw their appeal to traditionalism as attractive very much as Vladimir Putin now pitches himself to the American evangelical right. And, and Tucker Carlson and Fox News as a defender of traditional family values against the gays and against trans people and so forth and so on. Very similar in Germany that the, the, the Nazis promised to roll back decadence and so forth. Um, ironically, Rome, who was in charge of the brown shirts that then became the stormtroopers, was himself uh, a gay person, very much like the evangelical anti-gay movement, which is often led by people who are sort of self-loathing in some way, oddly uh, obsessed by these sexual issues, reflecting of their own struggles in their own lives. But that said, it was very parallel moment. And so the other group in Germany that, that paved the way for the rise of National Socialism was the industrialists, the equivalent of the billionaires and the aristocracy, the the, the conservatives, we might call the traditional Republicans in the Bush wing of the Republican Party. So it is not a stretch this Christmas to remember Sophie uh, Scholl and her brother Hans as the kind of exemplary people that we are going to need in our culture if we continue. So yes, it's true that more and more young people no longer associate with the evangelical movement per se. More and more young people are in the last election uh, that did not go so well for the Republicans or as well as expected, voted for the Democrats and so on. But until we have openly declared the fact that our billionaire class, our religion uh, in America, uh, represented by the Roman Catholic takeover of the Supreme Court by extremist ideologues like Amy Coney Barrett and these others that came through the Federalist Society, this stuff is not going to go away. So the very fact that the majority of younger voters is tilting against this fascistic white nationalist and Christian nationalist movement does not necessarily mean that the, we have hope for the future unless people like Sophie Scholl will stand up in today's period of history and, and be willing to, to make some sacrifices when it comes to the area of personal peace and prosperity uh, because as as the rise of fascism in the 1930s clearly demonstrated, they were not a majority movement when they came to power in Germany. They had just played the game with the support of very powerful elites in both religion and industry. And we have the exact equivalent today. And that is, if you look at Elon Musk and these other titans of industry in our own time, turning to the far right, beginning to fund with dark money, the Republican Party, the sort of MAGA wing of the of the movement, already in the case of Musk declaring for DeSantis from Florida, 
who who said Florida would be the place that woke goes to die and so forth. I think it's it's false optimism to say that just because when polls are taken, younger people are dropping out of, say, right wing evangelicalism. It does not mean that the culture cannot fall prey to the same forces that turned Germany into a fascist state between 1930 and 1933. It was a process. And we are very much in that process. I would just say we are in 1930 in the US now. And it isn't just about elections. It's about real power. And the power of the billionaire class in this country is not being reined in by anyone. On the right, you have people approving of it because of a capitalist idea of prosperity. And on the left, a lot of these guys started out as idealistic and these these tech bros were going to change the world for the better and so forth. What they've done instead is just simply profit and build barriers to being accountable. And therefore, inevitably, they're all sliding to the right in order to defend their own money. And that is exactly what happened in Germany. And so it isn't somebody else's problem. It's our problem. And the very fact that evangelicalism that I was part of on the far right wing has become less of a force today is not something that is going to necessarily make this go away. We need young people to become actively anti-fascist. We need young people to have heroes like Sophie Scholl rather than today's influencers on uh, WhatsApp and all the rest of it that just tend to be much more pushing product and lifestyle and so on. It's very ephemeral. It, it isn't rooted into any kind of, 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 of stand on any issue whatsoever other than how to get ahead personally. So Christmas, yes, it is Christmas. Yes, this is a time when we need to reflect on spiritual values and so forth. But I really think that we're in a crisis moment and, and the next elections are going to be important, but we have to go far beyond elections here. We need cultural change. We need new heroes. We need to lift up people like Sophie Scholl and the White Rose Movement and just say, OK, we can't repeat history, but what is our moral equivalent here? What are we going to do to stand against the, 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 the implicit rise of American fascism in a very different garb than Nazism was? We're not going to have people in un uniforms with, with, with armbands. Uh, yes, we have that type of people, too. But the much less obvious rise of fascism is coming from our technical and and our tech bros and all these other guys. And this is kind of a self-preservation on their part of trying to keep the capitalist system going exactly as they have known it, refusing to pay taxes and so forth. That may be the first motivation. But all these little dictator fascistic types who believe in their own um, immortality, as it were, almost, but certainly in their own in their own genius, are exactly the same kind of threat as the German industrialists who backed Hitler because Hitler made a kind of a deal with them. You give me power and I'll see that you can hang on to your profits and no one's going to bother you. In fact, I'll give you okay. slave labor by the time the war was over and he was drafting prisoners and Jews and others into the big factories. Factories right. like Mercedes and Volkswagen, by the way, who are still all, all going today, having never really apologized for that history. Come on back, Jesus. Come on back, Jesus. Come on back, Jesus. Pick up John Wayne on the way. The world's getting crazy, and it seems to get worse every day. So come on back, Jesus, and pick up John Wayne on the way. 
So do you think then that we're talking about framing in terms of a countervailing movement against the growth of American fascism? And it's a global problem, as you mentioned. Putin is one of the leaders of it, and and he's funding all kinds of right-wing parties in Western Europe as well, and he's got Orban and a few on his side already. For example, Trump and the Republicans always refer to the radical left Democrats. Well, that's a joke. But there are radical right Republicans. That's a fact. And, you know, they they labeled a lot of Islamists, Islamo-fascists. Can they be labeled as Christo-fascists? Absolutely. But more, more than that, I mean, if we don't have a, an encyclopedic lesson right now in the fact that Tucker Carlson, Fox News, and some of these fellow travelers in the religious right back Putin because they buy Vladimir Putin saying he is going to build a wall to defend white Christian culture against both invading other races, but also when it comes to homophobia and these other things, he's lifted this up as part of Christian belief. And again, you know, I don't want to be boring here, but the fact of the matter is that's an exact parallel, not a sort of like it was, but an exact parallel to the literature that was put out by the Nazi party between 1930 and 33 to justify what they were doing. You know, when 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 Dachau opened, which was the first concentration camp run by the SS before the SS was even incorporated officially into the governing system, um, when it along with the brown shirts and the stormtroopers, they were sort of this independent group run by Himmler. Um, with the brown shirts being run by Goring, uh, you know, their first victims were gay people, uh, rounded up and put in Dachau along with Jews. And at the beginning, they were murdering them uh, illegally and getting away with it only because the corruption of the judiciary was making it possible. There were some very brave lawyers, uh, two in particular stand out, both who were executed, one who was executed and one who died in 1986, I think it was. He survived the war who were bringing legal uh, legal writs and battles and suits against um, the commandant of Dachau, because at the beginning, the executions had started long before the Holocaust and proper began, simply illegal murders um, in what was supposed to be a re-education camp, um, much as the Chinese fascists are now running for the Uyghurs in, in China. So what you look at in that history is that the legal apparatus existed just as our rule of law existed and overlapped with the rise of, of the Nazis. And the first stage, and this is what people forget in 1930 to 33, what the Nazis did was try to remain respectable within that construct by, by uh, so infiltrating the judiciary in Germany with Nazi sympathizers that when these cases came forward with these brave lawyers prosecuting them, they went nowhere. The files were hidden and thrown away. And you can look exactly at what's happened to the Supreme Court with religiously fanatical people, uh, both from Roman Catholic backgrounds and evangelical and then sort of weird cultic mixes like Amy Conant Barrett doing exactly the same thing, burying cases that would challenge the loss of the rule of law when it comes to elections, for instance, burying them or voting the other way promoting gun ownership and violence in the streets and the ability to to carry weapons openly, loaded guns without permits in cities like New York that have tried to legislate against it, building a kind of a a militia citizenry that cannot be gainsayed by the rule of law, but can rise up, as it were, as just thugs on every level, a disorder which can be fixed by some kind of an elite only. And then, you know, as a transitional period. So 
our judiciary has been corrupted, much in the way the German judiciary was. We now have in place religious fanatics where there should be justices. And they have an agenda that has nothing to do with the American rule of laws was previously understood by both parties. And, and so we're at that stage. I would just say this is 1931 now. We're past the first hurdle. The judiciary is now controlled by the far right. Uh, the Federalist Society is not done with us. They are feeding a, hun a whole nother generation in of young lawyers. So the, the youth vote may be going more to the, to the center and more to the liberal causes. But when it comes to what counts, which is who controls the judiciary, the right is winning. And they are winning in a way that is going to affect future elections. So I would just say the denialism that came with Trump and, and the big lie about the fact that he claimed to have won the election, uh, that is going to dead end because his personality is not going to go forward. There will be other people carrying that torch. But the damage is done. And so I would just urge people on Christmas Day, an odd thing, I would just say stop pretending that this is somehow something different than what happened in Germany. It is not different. It is exactly the same. And it's not sort of parallel. It's the same thing. We even have a dictator, warmonger, horrible, rapist, murderer, hero in Vladimir Putin that the American right has tilted towards. They love this guy because he hates gay people as much as they do. And they hold him up and, and they're working with Viktor Orban and all these pseudo Christian organizations filled with devout Roman Catholics and evangelicals that meet and have these various national groups together. They're bringing people like Viktor Orban to speak to them, an actual fascist from Europe. And, and you know, when you see Zelensky trying to, to resist uh, the, the, uh, the invasion and the murder and the rape of his own country by, by Russia. And you see now the way the right is starting to tilt against the leadership of President Joe Biden, who has represented the kind of traditional American idea of standing against fascism and invasion uh, in, in his resistance. It is the right that is rising up now to question that. And it's very much like, like Lindbergh in the 1930s in America, who rose up with a lot of American nationalists, white nationalists, evangelicals, Catholics, and others, to oppose Franklin Roosevelt uh, standing up firmly against Hitler. And they were pro-Hitler. And these evangelicals are now becoming pro-Trump. I mean, well, pro-Trump as well, slip of the tongue, pro-Putin. And, and so the, the parallels are just too many to ignore. And so I would say if we remember somebody like Sophie Magdalena Scholl, that what we have to do is take the next step and say, hey, listen, you know, where were where were the people who were older and knew more when Sophie was, say, 15 or 14, when this was all happening in 1930 and 33? Why did it take her standing up, you know, in 1943 when the game was over and getting herself beheaded in a, by a guillotine in Munich, uh, this brutal, brutal execution of her and her brother and the others? Um, you know, are we really going to wait around uh, until our courts are totally saturated with right wing appointees? And our Supreme Court becomes nothing but a rubber stamp for not the rule of law, but the the rule, the disrule, the rule of rolling back election law and all these other things, um, putting guns on the street, all the rest of the stuff they're doing. You know, this is straight up fascism. This is nothing but what we've seen before. The, these open carry people, these guys showing up with with open carry long guns in front of state houses, in front of government buildings. At, at protests, uh, all, all these groups uh, that have begun to show up, these militias that appear with weapons, 
in front of state houses. This is straight out of the playbook of the brown shorts and the stormtroopers in 1930. This is what brought Hitler to power. Did the majority of Germans support it? Absolutely not. But when a tiny minority dedicated to violence and intimidation is allowed to show up at polling places with weapons and has to be ordered back to keep 100 yards away by a judge, this is the future unless we have the guts to stand up and say, we will not slide inexorably towards fascism by being too polite in criticizing what the right is doing. So the, these white nationalists, these Christo-fascists, this evangelical group that followed Trump and is now completely embedded with QAnon and any other conspiracy theory that comes along, anti-vaxxers and all the rest of them, this whole kit and caboodle is going to be easily led. And they've already shown that they will not uphold democracy or the rule of law, that they are motivated by hate to the point that they support Vladimir Putin, worth repeating, Vladimir Putin in his rape and invasion of Ukraine in his destruction of Ukraine, in, his, in, in the use of rape as a weapon of war. They, that is whose side these folks are on when Tucker Carlson stands up and is not fired by Rupert Murdoch for mouthing praise of not someone like Hitler, the actual next incarnation of that point of view, conquest by brutal force. It's not like it, it's the same thing, and the American right is supporting it. So just in the last few minutes, Anne Frank Schaefer, let's turn to the New Testament, which you know well. And is there a way that American Christians, and that includes the Christian right, can rediscover the book of Matthew, the Beatitudes, the, the real point of the prophet Jesus' existence? You know, I mean, yeah. you know, a lot of people now see the Bible as, as sort of a metaphor, as a guide, not as the literal truth, which yeah. is what fundamentalists believe. But if you do see it as a sort of a guide of how to live a better life, there's plenty in there that can guide all of us to a better life. So mm. is it possible that we can turn the table and, and get away from all the hate and division into some sort of unity and start and recognize the true nature of what the prophet Jesus was about, you know, ministering to the poor, yeah, etc., and yeah. not flying around in executive jets, shaking down poor people for money, carrying an AK-47, etc., etc. That's the hideous version of it that we have in the evangelical televangelists, but. Yeah, but I what would about just, getting back to the source, if if you will. Yeah, if you want to talk about the source of all spirituality, it's very interesting, because it dovetails exactly from all traditions, Christian, uh, as well as Jewish, uh, as well as Islamic, and so forth. They do have one thing in common, and that is all spiritual change starts with an idea that can be summed up in the word repentance, and repentance means to change direction. Interestingly enough, a very successful organization, both in terms of their ministry to people, but also the effect they've had on culture is Alcoholics Anonymous. And Alcoholics Anonymous begins and ends with one idea, and that is that you stand up in a meeting and you say, my name is Frank Schaefer, or my name is Tom Smith or Mary Jones, whatever it is, and I am an alcoholic. You admit who you are. By the way, I happen to have been spared that particular affliction. 
But I have good friends who go to their AA meetings and have for 10 or 15 or 20 years for substance abuse. You can do nothing with an abuser of substance, whether it is within a marriage and it is the brutality of a husband against a wife or a father against a child or an alcoholic's drinking problem or other substance abuse, unless there is repentance, which means A, admit who you are and B, set out to change while never claiming to have been healed or to be better, you are always that person. It's not a question of being, of, of, of changing and now you don't have to think about it. It's the opposite. It's thinking about it all the time, admitting you remain that person, but learning to cope. So anger management and Alcoholics Anonymous, you're, you say your name, my name is Mary Smith and I am an alcoholic. And that's how you begin each, each meeting and each discourse. So if there's going to be hope, uh, bringing these parts of Christianity back to what Sophie Scholl found to be true, it is going to be with some sort of movement or individual response to the conscience that we each have within us, the desire to leave something better to our children and grandchildren than an armed republic full of, of lawless citizens marching around that would rather have mass shootings in schools than give up their right to weapons of military destruction and and tactical vests and all the rest of this, it has to it has to begin with repentance. It has to begin with those people who remember enough of their evangelical upbringing or enough of their Jewish upbringing or Roman Catholic Christianity, whatever it may be, that some echo comes back to them, like the words of a forgotten grandparent, and saying, "Wait a minute, how far down this track are you going to go?" Are you really going to go along, for instance, with they're doing what they're doing in Iran now, now in the name of religion, raping women who are protesters, uh, murdering them, public hangings? Is this really the kind of uh, thing that we're going to want in America to rid ourselves of gay people and trans people and all the rest? Would you stand there and do that? Well, then backtrack to the point you are now and just say, look, we're on this path driven by hate. It has nothing to do with the faith that any of our our religions hold, um, it is a time for repentance. In a way, we need a Billy Graham evangelist to come forward, not with old time Bible religion this time, but with a message of repentance in terms of social salvation, national salvation. Do you want this country to be saved from fascism, from violence, from its own internal terrorism? Do you want to go down that path any further? And I would ask people on the left and the right that. And if we do not, then it's not a question of just brotherly love and touchy-feely stuff and all the rest of this. It's a question, first of all, saying, look, you know, am I willing to repent, identify myself as part of the problem, and say, I may not be able to change those instincts, but I will learn to cope better. I'll do the equivalent of AA meetings. I'll do the equivalent of these things. This is what church is supposed to be. Churches are supposed to be places of repentance and salvation, not politics, and they are supposed to, to bring change in people, the person who hates the gay person, the person who hates the lesbian, the person who hates the trans person, or for that matter, the left winger who hates the Republican MAGA voter and, and virtually spits every time she sees someone wearing a MAGA hat. Right. It works both ways. And if we're going to listen to the Christmas message, it doesn't begin with Jesus in Bethlehem, whether we believe that happened or not. It begins with the idea that there is a higher principle that lifts us out of our worst natures. And it begins with admitting we will not be better, but we will learn to cope. And let's start this Christmas by vowing to ourselves to cope with the fact that we are going along 
treading along like lambs to the slaughter on a path toward fascism here in America in some new form. It will not exactly be what happened in Germany. It'll be an American capitalistic form. And just remember that the first thing the fascists did in Germany was to look respectable by seizing control of the courts. They did that in Germany. Uh, that happened with, with Himmler, who then was running mm -hmm. the SS. That was his first move. Right. It was to seize the courts. So we're very much on that path. And if we want to get off of it, we're going to have to call ourselves and others to repentance and to grace. And that's the message of Christmas. Well, Frank Schaefer, I thank you very much for joining us here today on this Christmas Day. My pleasure. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. And again, I've been speaking with Frank Schaefer, the New York Times bestselling author of more than a dozen fiction and nonfiction books. Frank is a survivor of an evangelical fundamentalist childhood to become an acclaimed writer. He's a member of the advisory board of the Women's Business Collaborative, and his memoir, Crazy for God, which NPR Terry Gross called a very important book, is used as a textbook in history of religion classes and courses in comparative religion and sociology in public and private universities. And his uh, three semi-autobiographical novels about growing up in a fundamentalist mission, Portofino, Zermatt, and Saving Grandma, have been translated into nine languages, and he podcasts at In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, a series which features interviews with artists, activists, authors, and political and business leaders. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow at 5 p.m. with another background briefing. Bye for now. <laughs>